Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. Welcome to episode 11. It's getting dry in here. Droughty, make drought face. It is getting dry here. Okay. <laughs> also, somebody was saying something about us. We should have some music. So look, it's like a twofer there. I don't awesome, think that's what they meant. <laughs> awesome title and some really good tunes. What? Uh-huh. Maybe we can introduce every episode with a little ditty from me. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to learn more about drought impacts in the Pacific Northwest and what you can do, how GIS is used to make the drought determinations, and how you can report your drought experiences or get your very own weather station that like real scientists use the information from. Who doesn't want to do that? I want to do that. Cat fact. It has been suggested that the African wildcat has passed on its ability to survive near drought conditions to today's domestic cat. Which may be one of the reasons that today's cats are notorious for not drinking water. Whoa, that is crazy. Isn't it? Because, you know, they get all those like kidney urinary tract infection things because they don't drink water. Right. So fascinating. What we're here to talk about today, as you could probably guess by my amazing song at the beginning, is (laughs) drought. But I drought this episode will be very funny. What is drought? So according to the internet, drought is defined as a prolonged period of abnormally low rainfall leading to a shortage of water supply. Mm. In Washington state, drought is defined in statute as conditions where water supply is anticipated to be less than 75% of normal and there is anticipated hardship to water users and uses. Mm. Of course, nowadays, people drought the accuracy of the weathermen (sighs) because the climatic patterns are so unpredictable. The U.S. Drought Monitor is a federal program created in 2000, and they classify the entire U.S. into six categories of drought intensity from normal, aka non-drought conditions, Mm -hmm. to exceptional drought. And each level of intensity comes with additional associated water conservation actions um, that range from things like voluntary water use restrictions to widespread water shortages leading to water emergencies. Mm. Ew, scary. Yeah. The U.S. Drought Monitor also has an online map which shows the location and intensity of drought across the country. The data is updated each Tuesday and released on Thursday. Links in our show notes. Nice. Love some good maps. Amy, what causes a drought? Droughts can have any number of causes, including low precipitation, especially when that's coupled with warmer temperatures, Mm. El Nino events, which usually exacerbate the lower precipitation and the warmer temperatures, Mm -hmm. human activities, and erosion. So really, the, the erosion part of that, think of like agriculture. So when you have farmlands that are maybe all of that soil is exposed, Mm-hmm. that soil might be more prone to being under drought conditions than if it was vegetated. So what we're experiencing in Washington this year is a low precipitation drought. We had low snowpack coupled with hot temperatures in April, which melted more snow than normal. And in western Washington, we depend on the slow melting of snow in higher elevations to keep our streams and rivers flowing throughout the summer when we don't typically see much additional precipitation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why most of western Washington is now under the severe drought classification. Wow. So what are the forecasted impacts of climate change on droughts in our region? 
As we probably would assume, climate change is predicted to increase droughts in some areas, both by increasing the temperature and changing the precipitation cycle. Hmm. In western Washington, for example, the total annual accumulation of precipitation is not actually expected to change dramatically from what we currently get. But the time of year that we see that precipitation plays a critical role in, the, in our hydrologic cycle here, talking about that snowmelt kind of sustaining mm-hmm. the streams. So the new precipitation cycle is projected to show up later in the year, meaning that we'll have less snowpack accumulation in the winter mm-hmm. um, and more flows kind of coming in the spring and later spring. They won't be set up as the snow in the higher elevations. And then that's expected to be compounded by warmer temperatures, which will exacerbate the drought conditions. Yeah. Like in western Washington, most of the snowpack this year melted two to three weeks earlier than normal. Wow. And that is expected to have an impact on our overall stream flow throughout the summer. Mm, that's sad. What do you call a camel in a drought? Two humps. Dry humper. Dry A dry humper. <laughs> <laughs> so what areas are experiencing drought conditions right now? There are over 5 million people in Washington and almost 2 million in Oregon that are currently experiencing some form of drought conditions. Wow, that's a lot of people. And western Washington is the only area that is experiencing severe drought in the Washington, Oregon area, at least. Mm -hmm. The governor of Washington declared 24 more watersheds in the drought conditions on May 20th. There had been three prior designations prior to that May 20th one Hmm. using the state's definition of drought. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting, too, if you look at the maps of where he's made that. None of the more urban counties, really, so like King, Pierce, uh, Snohomish, are unaffected currently. But most of the surrounding counties around those ones are impacted. But then if you look at the severe drought maps from the U.S. Drought Monitor, uh-huh. they have the entire area showing as under severe drought conditions. So it, it it's kind of interesting. interesting. So there is something arbitrary about, like, the hardship part, I think, Mm -hmm. of that Washington state designation. Interesting. So meanwhile, somewhat ironically, southeast Washington and most of eastern Oregon have had normal amounts of precipitation and are not considered to be under any drought conditions currently. Huh. Other parts of northern and central Washington and Oregon are experiencing abnormally dry and moderate drought conditions, but not the severe drought conditions. Mm-hmm. Most of the area that's experiencing the severe drought conditions is located between Skagit and Cowlitz counties, so from the northern border almost down to the southern border, and then out west towards the coast. Hmm. And so this includes areas that are typically temperate rainforest. 60 plus inches of rain typically. So then right. these areas are less than 75% of what we would normally expect. So like the Ho rainforest? Correct. Wow. Yeah. So most of the rivers actually out on the Olympic Peninsula that flow out to the ocean are already lower than average for oh, flows. Wow. And it's only June. Mm-hmm. And then those, like I was saying, the areas to the east that are typically less wet seem to be less impacted by the current weather conditions. And Western Washington is kind of alone in the U.S. right now when it comes to this severe drought classification. As of the recording of this episode, in addition to Western Washington, there's a small area in eastern Montana and then just like a few little pockets in the southeast, kind of down by Florida, that have the severe drought classification. But all areas in the U.S. under severe drought currently make up just about half a percent of the total area of the U.S. So we're largely impacted, but most of the rest of the U.S. is not. Um, As you maybe have heard, uh, the Mississippi drainage basin has been seeing record amounts of precipitation this year. Right. 
they have more precipitation than normal, not drought, floody conditions, I guess you would call that. Yeah, it's been crazy out there. Yeah, so it's just kind of interesting that, you know, here we are, this area that's typically more wet, but we are experiencing the dry out of most of the U.S. right now. Right. And according to the Department of Ecology, the latest as of June 19th, looking at the seven-day average, more than half of the rivers in the state were showing stream flows in the bottom 10% of flows measured for this time of year, so they're low. Wow. Daytime temperatures in the Yakima River are reaching 80 degrees, and that actually becomes a thermal block for fish movement. 80 degrees in the water? Correct. Wow. We have some links in our show notes for a couple of stream flow websites. Cool. What's the actual forecast for the summer weather? So NOAA's Climate Prediction Center has forecasted warmer and drier conditions for the west side of Washington state from June to August. In addition, weak El Nino conditions still exist. We, they were happening through the winter, and there is a 70% chance that they'll continue through the summer. Mm, so not really expecting much rain. Correct. Uh. One of how the severe drought area is classified is that people can actually expect to experience crop or pasture loss, common water shortages, and water restrictions may be imposed in those areas. So what does a drought mean for Washington and Oregon? According to the Department of Ecology's website, drought conditions expose different populations and communities to different levels of vulnerabilities. For example, residents of large cities with storage and infrastructure are typically at lower risk, while residents of smaller water systems lacking storage or source redundancy are at higher risk. So this might be part of the reason why like King County and Pierce County are not under the governor's declaration currently because their water supplies are protected because they have storage available. Okay. Whereas some of the other areas might not have enough storage to mm-hmm. kind of get them through the predicted period of lower precipitation. Gotcha. And then similarly, a farmer diverting water from a small creek may be more vulnerable to losing access to that water than a farmer taking water from a larger river, which can support more out-of-stream use in a dry year. Mm -hmm. Then by declaring a drought emergency, the Department of Ecology can offer vital support to these communities. It allows them to expedite emergency water right permitting. For instance, one farmer may lease water from another farmer, and ecology can kind of expedite the transfer of all that happening under a drought emergency. Mm. It also allows them to make funds available to address hardships caused by the drought conditions. So, for example, on June 4th, ecology announced a grant program to help with drought response. So basically, local communities can apply for these funds to do storage or in-stream flows or those types of things. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happens during a drought is we can have water shortages for agriculture, energy, people, and ecosystem services. Depressing. On the individual level, obviously, we a lot of times increase our use during the summertime, watering our lawns and our our vegetables, our Mm -hmm. gardens. Mm -hmm. In Washington, domestic water use is managed at the local level by the city, county, or private utility. So the state always encourages everyone to use water wisely, but they don't require, they don't put any restrictions just because there's a drought emergency. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Your individual city, they may do something like an every other day watering schedule in the summer. Mm -hmm. So an individual jurisdiction may place those kind of restrictions on water use within their water system, but there's nothing that gets mandated from the state level. And then, of course, there's just kind of the, you know, environment and how that's impacted by drought. What? So... Fish is obviously kind of a big thing in our area. So we have lower flows in the rivers. In some areas, the flow will go subsurface. So this, the fish 
don't Ooh. there's not connectivity actually between the upper watershed and the marine water typically that's no good there can be increased temperatures which can also result in increased biological activity growth of algae and then that can decrease dissolved oxygen you will see stressed plant communities western washington has recently seen increase in plant impacts from multiple years of higher heat and less precipitation so we're actually seeing die-offs of really iconic northwest trees like madrona <gasps> cedar big leaf maple other plants like salal uh, which wow. just had a huge dieback on vancouver island and people are seeing that type of stuff more and more out there and kind of being like, whoa, this is kind of sketchy, which yeah. it is, because those are the trees we kind of think of being in this area. And if they're not surviving here anymore, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. We also, of course, have an increased risk of fire due to lower precipitation and higher temperature. Low soil moisture and low humidities also contribute to that increased risk of wildfire. And of course, if you want to learn more about fire and wildfire preparedness, listen to episode nine, Fire Must Burn. Yeah. And then just as a kind of quick example to illustrate what water shortage can mean, the city of Port Orchard actually just recently denied development permits to the McCormick Woods, which was a 2,000 plus lot subdivision because of concerns about water shortage. Wow. This is a really big deal because yeah. permitting is a huge revenue source for local municipalities. So by them saying we're not going to permit these sites, that means they're losing out on a lot of money. Right. So this is a pretty serious thing. Now, Port Orchard is kind of unique because Port Orchard is located on the southern part of the Kitsap Peninsula. Annual precipitation on the Kitsap Peninsula can range from 70 inches to less than 30 inches. Oh, wow. But because of the unique nature of the peninsula, its groundwater does not receive any recharge from snowmelt from either the Olympics or the Cascade Mountains. Oh. And so they're instead completely dependent on the precipitation that falls on the ground on Kitsap Peninsula. Oh, wow. And if you've ever looked at a map, the Kitsap Peninsula is only attached to the rest of Washington and not an island by a little chunk of land located between Hood Canal and Case Inlet. It's actually about a mile across between those two spots. And that's the only thing that connects huh. Kitsap Peninsula to the rest of Washington. Without that little chunk right there, They'd it'd be, be an island. Surrounded by saltwater. Mm-hmm. Wow. And according to an interview with Como News, link in our show notes, the city says a new study showed that any more homes could drain the water supply in this area. So this emergency moratorium was put in place. And then according to the Kitsap Sun, the city in 2007 entered into agreement with the former McCormick Woods developer that would build storage and other facilities to accommodate the expected growth. Permits issued in the past expired without the construction occurring and since then the state's regulations for construction of water storage facilities have changed so this is part of what's going on oh. with how this development got permitted and then halfway through the construction of it is finding this out this is not typically you wouldn't find this out halfway through right. development they look at water availability as part of the development so but sometimes the development projects also last a very long time. I mean, 2007, that is 12 years ago. Whoa. So. How was 2007 12 years ago I already? mean, when 2000 <laughs> was only four years ago, it right? doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Wow. So the city of Port Orchard is working with the city of Bremerton and the developer because they actually get some water from Bremerton that they buy from them to kind of find a solution. But they're halting all further development until they can find this additional storage. Wow, that's fascinating. What can we do to minimize the impacts of drought? 
As an individual, conserving water is the best way to mitigate for the impacts of drought. Mm -hmm. And we suggest that you start with a water audit or a water calculator to calculate your water use footprint. Jen and I decided we would use the watercalculator.org website to calculate our average water footprint per day. Challenge accepted. Basically, you answer a series of questions about your typical indoor, outdoor, and virtual water use. It's not what you think. Right. The whole survey is pretty quick, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. The questions kind of range from whether or not you let it mellow to (laughs) if you eat meat or if you like to shop a lot. I like the questions themselves because I think they start getting you to think about ways that you're currently using water that you might not really think of as water intensive. Right. And it is pretty generic. Some of the questions don't account for all of the uses. Right. Or they don't, they give you like one answer kind of, and you have to just say yes or no, even if it's like a maybe or sometimes kind of answer. Right. So we have not shared our results with each other. I'm probably going to win because I'm super water conscientious. Just kidding. I predict Jen will because (laughs) I eat meat. And just shy of 75% of my daily water usage is associated with eating meat on average only once per day. Wow. Yeah. So that's not even every meal, which is another option. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's there's some kind of interesting things I thought that were discussed in the calculator, including a lot of the virtual water use items. For example, it takes an enormous amount of water to produce animal products like meat and dairy because livestock and poultry in the U.S. eat large amounts of water-intensive feed, usually corn and soybeans, with agricultural withdrawals accounting for 70% of the water use around the world. Wow. Yeah. Because irrigation-related water consumption is so high, It's also important to make water-wise food and textile purchases. For example, cotton takes a ton of water because it's typically grown in arid regions where it needs irrigation. And then it's also good to think about how goods are moved around the planet and consider how much water is moved and consumed in the process, even though it's kind of hidden from sight. Mm -hmm. Things like smartphones take over 3,000 gallons of water to produce which is both associated with the manufacturing and the disposal of wastewater where they just dilute the wastewater with fresh water so that it meets water quality Uh, standards. uh, Whack fact. Did you know that it takes 22 gallons of water to make one pound of plastic? No, I did not. This means it takes twice as much water to produce a plastic water bottle as the water that is contained in it. Wow, that's disgusting. Right? Speaking of industry... Industry is estimated to withdraw over 15.9 billion gallons of water per day. Wow. But in their defense, they've also become more efficient, reducing water use by 12% since 2005 and 33% since 1970. Wow. So let's talk about our results here really quick. Okay. I wanted to kind of point out some things that I do good and some things that I don't do so great. So, for example, I take a six to seven minute shower. They recommend five minutes or less. So I select the next one up, which is a five to ten minute with a low flow shower head. And that the U.S. average for a shower is 12, which I think is kind of low. Right. Minus 20. So that's one place that I'm not doing great water wise. Mm -hmm, Same. I sometimes let it mellow. Not all the time. So I get some only five gallons a day for that. This one I thought was interesting. I don't have a gray water system. I feel like probably not a lot of people have gray water systems. The U.S. average, they say, is negative 15. I get zero for that. Right. So I, that one seemed kind of confusing in its response. Mm-hmm. 
the bathroom sink one. I use for under five minutes with low flow faucets, and that accounts for six gallons per day, but the U.S. average is four. But I think that was the lowest option you could get was six gallons a day. So what the heck, water calculator. That's one where I erred on the side of caution. So I said under five minutes with conventional faucets because I don't know if mine's low flow Mm -hmm. or conventional. And I got 20. Wow. Where the average is four. Right. So that's quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But not as high as some other stuff. Right. Do you have any other indoor ones you'd like to highlight? I don't let it mellow. And that gives me 25 gallons a day versus 19. And five is what I got with the sometimes lets it mellow. So on the water footprint calculator, they do have tips. So after it tells you each of these things and how you're doing compared to the average, it has some things that you can do to reduce your water usage. And one of the things that I find fascinating is, so when you're taking a shower, if you put a bucket in the shower while you're waiting for the water to warm up, use that water for like, yeah, flushing the toilet, which I wouldn't probably do, but you know, cleaning, things like that, you can reduce your. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Montana and in some areas near Billings, they actually can't get wells dug. So people have water trucked in. Oh, wow. So I lived in a place where that's what we did. We had our water trucked in every two weeks. We get 750 gallons and we had a tank that got filled in the ground. Wow. And we actually weren't super duper conservative with it but i knew other people who anytime the shower came on they'd fill up gallon jugs with water and like use that to water their plants or Mm -hmm. that type of stuff well i think if you're having water trucked in and you have this finite amount yeah it's a lot easier to be conscious of and that actually that brings up a great point about why one of the reasons why water audit is so great is because you might not really understand what you're doing currently that's I'm using a lot of water and that gives you kind of a good place to see where Mm -hmm. you have higher than average or lower than average water use and what things you might be comfortable kind of changing your habits on to become more water efficient. Mm -hmm. Outdoor wise, I didn't have a lot of water use out there. I do try to plant drought tolerant plants and don't water them very often. Mm -hmm. I don't have a swimming pool. I do use drive through car washes and I do that partially because of stormwater concerns, um, Mm -hmm. not just for water conservation. Virtual water. Now, this this one was more interesting to me. So some of my big ones here is being a meat eater. That accounts for over a thousand gallons a day for me. Wow. Just over a thousand or? It's uh, 1,081 gallons per day for one meat meal per Uh day. Hmm. They have one about shopping habits. So I put shop for basics, which Mm -hmm. I do like shopping. But I I think compared to typical Americans, I'm probably way under Mm -hmm. like anywhere near the normal. So I put shop for basics. They give you three different options. And that one's 291 gallons. Still far below the U.S. average, but that's obviously a one place where a lot of my water uses. Electricity, interesting to me because it's based on state, and I did Mm -hmm. put in Oregon for Uh mine here. So I put that I get 100% of my power from the utility, and that equals 33 gallons per day in Oregon. How about in Washington? In Washington, it equals 28 gallons a day. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool that they calculate that out. Mm-hmm. And then another one I thought was kind of interesting is pet food. Mm-hmm. And that can be quite a bit of water use also. And that same thing. So you've got a lot of meats that you're feeding pets. And then those meats mm-hmm. depend on water intensive agriculture to grow. So Right. So what's your grand total, Jen? What's your daily average? 
My daily average is 1,305. Ah! <laughs> What's yours? 1,444. Oh, wow. I thought I was just going to shoot you way out of the water because of the meat thing for sure. So I'm pretty dang yeah. close to you. Well, what was really surprising to me is I'm a vegetarian and a vegetarian uses 790 gallons per day. Huh. Which was way higher than I was expecting. Yeah, that's also. Yeah. Huh. I don't know how much the vegan is. Probably a lot less, but I was Wait. surprised that vegetarian. Was yeah, no, high. that is still pretty high. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to water the crops, I guess, still. Well, and they're probably factoring in dairy. Transportation. Oh, yeah. And That's a good so, point. Yeah. yeah. So we're both pretty well below the U.S. average, though, which is mm-hmm. 2,220 gallons per day. And again, this is for your indoor, outdoor, and that virtual water use, which includes things like recycling and there's a couple other things. So highly recommend you go check that out. See how you compare to Jen and I. Post your results up on Facebook. Get all gloaty if you're more water conscientious than we are because... We like to think we're kind of doing okay, but mm-hmm. I mean, dang, 1,400 gallons a day of water is still a lot of right. water for one person. Like, I feel like a water piggy using that much water. And that's another great thing that I recommend is look at your water bill. Be aware of what your monthly water mm-hmm. consumption is. Did you use a lot more water this month versus last month? Did you irrigate a bunch this year? Did you have a leak somewhere? It's a great place to start, just like your electric bill, too, to kind of get an idea of where you typically are and then look for changes from where you typically are. Because if you're not paying attention to that stuff, then you could totally have a leak in your toilet or faucet and that can lose a lot of water. Mm -hmm. So how can you save water? According to the Water Calculator website where we did our footprints, there's five simple steps you can take. Mm. So step one, they say, change your diet. It takes water, a lot of it, to grow, process, and transport your food. Step two, cut indoor water use. There are lots of opportunities to cut back on water use in the kitchen, bathroom, laundry room, and certainly fix those leaks. Right. Now, if your shower head isn't labeled, you can calculate the flow rate still by just taking a one-gallon bucket. And if it takes less than 24 seconds to fill up, the shower head flow rate is more than 2.5 gallons per minute. And the U.S. EPA WaterSense program labels efficient shower heads that use a maximum of two gallons per minute or less. Well, I'm going to (laughs) go after this and uh, figure out. Teach yourself how to Google that. Yes. (laughs) Also, see what my fossils are are, because I might be able to reduce my water usage a little bit. My score anyway. Right. Because I just assumed that all of mine were not low flow because I didn't know. Very cool. Yeah. Step three is uh, use less water outdoors. Of all the residential water use in the U.S., on average, we use about a quarter outdoors, a quarter to a third, depending on what sources you look at. In some Western states, a half to three quarters of that is just for lawns and gardens. Mm. Step four, save water, save energy. Water and energy are linked, and it takes a lot of water to make energy, electricity, and even just transportation fuels. It takes energy to move and heat and treat water. So when you save energy, you're also saving water. Hmm. And the last step, step five, this is a big one that most Americans could probably do a lot of in, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's changing your buying habits. Practically everything you buy, use, and consume has a water footprint because it took water to process or transport it. So be thoughtful about your purchases. Reusing what you can and recycling can reduce your water footprint. Tons of links in our show notes. Great. Did you hear about the guy who was taken to court for wasting water? No. 
He was found guilty beyond a reasonable drought. Oh, no. (laughs) To conclude this segment, like they say on the Water Calculator website, by choosing renewable energy, being careful with purchases, moderating our diets, everyone can lessen the burden on the water resources at home, in town, and around the planet. That's right. Moving on to the GIS tool. So I'm not going to talk so much about a specific GIS tool in this episode, but rather I'm going to talk about the U.S. Drought Monitor, which Amy mentioned. So I'm going to call it the USDM from now on, U.S. Drought Monitor. So I'm going to talk about this in more detail and how it uses GIS. Cool. And I got my information for the segment of the podcast from a presentation given by Eric... Lubhusen? I'm pretty sure that is right. Wow, I'm impressed. I don't know. I'm sorry if I butchered that, but he's a meteorologist and one of the authors of the USDM. And I'll link to the presentation in the show notes. The USDM started actually back in August of 1999. The first draft was an experimental map, and it wasn't done using GIS at all. Hmm. It was drawn in a program called CorelDRAW, which is a basic graphics program. The map showed very generalized drought conditions across the U.S. I bet it was super pixelated, too. Oh, yeah. Super pixelated. But it was shown in a White House briefing in August of 1999. Nice. And they liked it so much that a week later, it went from experimental to operational. Wow. Yeah. So the official USDM was born. And four years later, in August of 2003, the USDM switched over into GIS. Because GIS is the coolest. Exactly. Way cooler than Corel Draw, I can guarantee that. <laughs> so even though a GIS program was used to draw and update the map, it wasn't actually being used for any kind of analysis yet. That came in about 2008 when the creators started bringing in data such as precipitation, precipitation departure from normal, and soil moisture. And they were looking at this information before, just not in the GIS. So today... They use a very robust set of layers and methods to create the drought map every week. And they have all sorts of formulas to determine the drought codes, which makes the map objective. So today's process looks a little something like this. First, they use Python scripts to pull raster or like cell-based data, sort of like pictures. And for those of you who don't know what a Python script is, it's basically like a snake that eats your data (laughs) and then spits it out in a slightly different format and you can replicate Mm. it over and over again. 100%. You'll Um, have to listen to a future episode when Jen talks more about (laughs) Python scripts. Exactly. They pull this data from the web and convert it into a format that they can more readily use. And this is all automated. Then they pull tabular data from thousands of weather stations across the U.S. And they use Excel to make the data (sighs) GIS ready. I love using Excel and GIS (laughs) together. Yes. And then they QC radar data based on precipitation data with the weather station readings. Then they take 60-day percent of normal precipitation data which is a layer out there that they also pull from the web. And they convert that to drought categories by using what's called the standard precipitation index. The standard precipitation index comes in both radar-based raster data and point-based station data as well. Another layer they pull in is the standard precipitation evapotranspiration index. And for those of you that are like, say, what? That's like how evaporation and plants transpire. What did I did I not clarify that at all? It accounts for losses from temperature and evaporation. There we go. So they use this layer with caution and they pull in seven day average stream flow percentiles from stream gauges because that's another 
indicator indicator kind of. of drought. Mm-hmm. And the USDA downloads, converts, and plots the monthly reservoir data in GIS. And one of the maps they produce is the reservoir percentage of average capacity layer. And so the authors pull that in because the amount of water in the reservoirs is also going to indicate how droughty it is. <laughs> droughty it is. Snowpack data are also brought in. Vegetation health index data, which is derived weekly from satellite data. Remember that NDVI tool I talked about a few episodes ago? Yep. Wait, so that information, they have that weekly? Yeah. Is that available to everyone, the weekly data? Or is that only available to cool people that are doing massive data crunches like this? You know, I'm not sure. I, I would have to look it up. They might, they may not have access to that actual satellite data, but if they have access to that derived product, which is what they oh, need. Oh, also that, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Right. Because they're just pulling in all this data that's created from these other agencies, and then they use it to make the map. And they also use modeled soil ma- moisture data from NOAA, and it's modeled daily. And they're using modeled data because there's not a nationwide network of uniform soil moisture sensors. Yeah, that would be amazing if yeah. they had that information yeah daily. so they just have to rely on models right now for that and they're evaluating other data layers that are being developed such as the evaporative stress index layer from NOAA. but those are pretty much the the major layers that they're using so all of these input layers are evaluated and then the usdm authors still draw in the drought polygons by hand which takes between 20 to 40 hours per week. Wow, that is so crazy. I would not have imagined. I would have imagined those polygons were just created from that mashup Mm -hmm. of that information. And I believe there are about 11 map authors, and they're all volunteer. What? They do this all in volunteer time. Holy cow, that is insane. And because they have all of this great data in GIS, they can also create a variety of derived maps, such as areas where, say, winter wheat is grown that are experiencing drought. And then other agencies use this for things like helping expedite aid to farmers in affected counties and things like that. So because of GIS technology and better processes, the USDM has come a long way. It's now much more detailed and accurate, and even though it still takes a long time to produce, it's become much easier than it was in the beginning. And even though it takes so much time to produce, they do it weekly. I mean, it's pretty right. impressive that this is every week another one of these comes out with a different right set of data of where the drought is happening. I don't know. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks. So now onto the citizen science portion. I want to talk about two different opportunities today. First is you can report how lack of water is affecting you through the Drought Impact Reporter, which is from the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska. And you can submit a drought impact report for anywhere in the U.S. via a super sweet Survey123 app, which is a GIS app, (laughs) at the UNL website, which is University of Nebraska Lincoln, I believe. But I'll put the link in the show notes. You can then see the results in an awesome story map. I love story maps. Right? And it has several tabs which show how drought is impacting different sectors from agriculture to municipal water supply to fish and wildlife habitat. And when you fill out the survey to submit your report, you can fill out any and all of the sections. Cool. And you can also attach photos. And this is just a starting point for interested parties to see what's going on. And it's based solely on media reports and subjective volunteer reports. So. I think there was an option through the Department of Ecology's website, too, to submit drought observations. So if you want to have a bit more impact, 
you can become a Coco Ross reporter. And Coco Ross <laughs> stands for... That's how you have to say it. Yes. It stands for Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. So what this is, it's a network of volunteers who have purchased high-quality rain gauges, and they cost around $35. But then you report the rain amounts, as well as other observations such as hail and other precipitation. Like snow. Yeah. Each day. And these reports are then used by a wide variety of people, including the National Weather Service, climatologists, researchers, insurance industry, forensic detectives. Whoa. Right? That's super cool. And of course, the U.S. Drought Monitor, just to name a few. Even readings of zero rain are very important, and they help researchers study and identify drought conditions. So if you want to become a volunteer, you do need to commit to reading and emptying your rain gauge at the same time every day, and you need to do it every day. What happens if you miss a day? They don't like it. Mm. Scientists don't like it. I know some people who have these will train neighbors or uh, friends and family. And it's it. kind of like having somebody watch your pets. If right. you go on vacation, you have somebody else do it for you and submit the information. So there you have it. The end of episode 11. Droughty McDroughtface. It's getting dry in here. How to survive the dry in the rainforest? I don't know. We had a lot of names for it. <laughs> we hope you laughed and learned your way through and that we have inspired you to make it out alive. Aww. We talked about the drought, how it's here mm. and here to stay for a while at least, Aww. and what we can do to minimize our own water footprints. We learned how complex data is used in GIS to make drought determinations weekly. So cool. Mm -hmm. And how you can help by either reporting your drought impacts in your local area, or if you want super extra bonus credit, set up your own weather station to help collect data for scientists. Yeah. I mean, why don't I have one of these? I don't know. It's almost like I don't care. Right. Please join us for our next episode where we talk about creosote and derelict vessels derelict they're so derelict and please don't forget to rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or on our facebook page at facebook.com slash will we make it out alive and if you like the podcast please tell your friends about it don't be selfish until next time Will we make it out alive? This is Amy signing off for Jenna and Amy. So Jen what? doesn't have to say anything else. Ugh, rude. Bum, 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 this is Too the loud. end of a song. I mean, this is the end of a show. Somebody wanted some music, and I've always wanted to sing, you know. Beautiful. That's what they all say. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>